So sometimes uh, when you're parenting and you're going through the whole parenting experience, uh, there are times that uh, your, um, your love of stuff, uh, particularly your love of your stuff, will sometimes uh, come into a uh, direct uh, competition against your love for your children. Can I get an amen from anybody who has <laughs> parented and experienced something that you thought uh, you were going to keep nice and value for a long time and your children had other plans? Um, you know, sometimes this is on a small scale, and uh, what happens is kind of okay, and you can be like, all right, all right, all right, okay, I can roll with this, not too big of a deal. Sometimes it's on a large scale. Um, when I was young, uh, I'm going to guess probably in between somewhere around four, getting on five, um, we were living in Florida. My dad was going to Bible college, uh, two kids at the time. And uh, so, as you can imagine, money was quite tight. And uh, my dad, before he had decided to go down to Bible college and become a pastor, he, um, he had purchased uh, what at the time was an extremely expensive van. It was one of those old schools, uh, guessing from the time frame, this would probably have been around 1980, so I'm guessing it was about a 77, 78, like black Chevy van that had like the mag wheels on it with those side pipes. And it was the kind that inside you could like convert it from like a seat to like a bed to like a little picnic table in the back. It had that like the wood on the engine cover console, the fancy wood to put your cups in. Like, so you felt like classy. Had the captain's chairs in the back, like before those were really con. Like it was just like, whoo, everything was fantastic. Just black, just beautiful, beautiful van. And, um, uh, yeah, so uh, I was, uh, as a four-year-old moving on five, um, learning in school my alphabet. And, um, you know, and so every kid needs to practice the alphabet. And uh, <laughs> so one day I decided I'm going to practice the alphabet. Now, in my defense, I have no memory of this. I've seen pictures post this event, and I've heard the story many times. But in my mind, I thought, well, I needed to practice my alphabet. And so the van was parked outside in the driveway, and uh, I reached down and picked up a rock. And in the side of my dad's black custom Chevy van, I started at A. Got to B, C. I got about halfway through the alphabet before uh, somebody realized what was happening walking by and went up and knocked on my parents' door. And uh, my dad came out, and uh, to his, um, to his uh, uh, horror, I had uh, etched into the side of the van the alphabet. I wish I could say that was the end of the story. Um, so dad's like, all right, okay, okay. I'm not going to blow up. Like, this was not malicious. You were doing what you'd been taught, practicing your alphabet. I was proud. I'm like smiling. Dad, look at my alphabet. Like A, B, C, right? So dad says, oh my goodness, okay. So as he's trying to figure out what to do, he's like, we're going to wash the van. So he brings out the hose, turns it on, tells me to start hosing it down. What he didn't realize was that the side window on the passenger side was down. And so when he came back out, 
<laughs> with soap and a sponge and ready to do it while I had wet down the van. I'm standing there with the hose, just filling up the inside of that van with water. And I'm like, look, I'm wet down. Again, proud as could be that I'm helping my dad wash the van. He, to his credit, doesn't explode. <laughs> Takes the hose from me. <laughs> Stands there for a minute, takes a few deep breaths. He also had a motorcycle at the time that he rode around most of the time uh, to save gas. And uh, he thought, well, the motorcycle sits out in the rain the whole time. Can't possibly hurt that. So he's like, son, go wash the motorcycle while I dry out the inside of the van. So he gets up into the inside of the van. He's got towels and trying to sop it up and just, you know, it's just a mess. Gets out of the van, goes walking up towards the carport where I am with the motorcycle. And uh, I had decided to clean the motorcycle, all right. I'd taken the hose, and I'd run it as far up the tailpipe as I could get it. <laughs> Water is squirting up through the engine, out the carburetor, at the top of this bike motor, <laughs> mixing in with the engine on the inside where water is not supposed to be. Proud of myself as I could be helping him wash the motorcycle. To his credit, I don't have any traumatic memory of yelling or spankings or groundings or anything of that event. But sometimes parenting doesn't go the way you want it to go, right? And so we're, we're, we're wrapping up this series on parenting, the first parenting series I've ever done. Uh, here at Tapestry, and uh, we're wrapping up. I'm glad to see you all out uh, for the ending of this series. Um, some advantages and disadvantages to being a small church. One of the disadvantages of being a small church is when uh, people all kind of decide to not come on one weekend, you end up with just the people putting the service on and one poor visitor that showed up. Uh, that is the downside of uh, that, which so all of you who skipped last week, um, you helped that visitor feel very welcome. Um, the upside of that is now I can look and say, look, we've tripled our attendance since last week. <laughs> oh, lying with statistics. Fantastic. Um, so anyway, we're wrapping up this series today, and as I have pointed out uh, from the beginning with this series, uh, that when it comes to good parenting and examples of good family, uh, the Bible is of absolutely no help. Uh, there are zero examples in the Bible of good parents and good families. Uh, instead, what you will find is a, an essential uh, encyclopedia of family dysfunction. Uh, you want to know what not to do? Take a look at all the families in the scriptures. You're going to find a whole lot there. But Jesus and the authors of the New Testament, even though they didn't directly uh, give us instruction on parenting, they laid down a base foundation for parenting for us. And Jesus, he never directly adjusted, but he laid down the foundation for good parenting when he laid down the foundation of behavior for people who are going to claim to be followers of Jesus. And he laid it down in what everybody who attends tapestry at any regularity is extremely familiar with in his new command, as he told us, you are to love others the way I have loved you. And embedded within that is the foundation for good parenting. And I say it's embedded because it's not on the surface. It's not apparent. You got to start to kind of dig down and, and look for it. Um, but the implications for parents are embedded within that. Fortunately, 
uh, the Apostle Paul comes along, and throughout his writings, uh, he gives the different little church groups that he's writing to, he gives them handles to grab a hold of. Uh, kind of instructions on, you know, this Jesus brand of love. Th this is what it looks like. Here's what it looks like in practice. Here's how it behaves. Here's how it behaves under stress. Here's how it behaves around family. Th this is the way you need to approach it. And um, I think that uh, for him, that he's got these scattered throughout his New Testament writings, but um, the most famous one is in his first letter to the church of Corinth. And he gives us this list where he really spells out what the Jesus brand of love looks like. And I think this list is probably the most instructive to parents as to how they should approach their children as they're raising them, right? So um, now in part two of this series, we began down Paul's list. And if you were with us or have watched that video for part two, um, we only got three words in uh, before we stalled, right? We got stuck. Here, here's where we got stuck that second week. Love is patient, uh, because if we're honest with ourselves, um, that is where most parenting falls apart. <laughs> you, nobody, nobody has ever been a parent and not had their patience tested beyond their ability to stand up under it. All of us have failed in the area of patience. But we uh, talked our way through that, um, made you feel okay about it, how you could do better. Then last week, we made it through three more of his statements. The first one was this, uh, love is kind, right? Love is kind, and we basically stated that essentially the working definition of kindness here is lending your strength to someone rather than reminding them of their weakness, right? And then he says this, love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, and those are all kind of collected together as one. And then we spent a really good amount of time last week on this next one. It, being loved, does not dishonor others. It does not dis dishonor others. And we discovered through our conversation last week um, that, honor, that honor and mutual respect are at the heart of every single mutually satisfying relationship throughout any arena you may be in, uh, spousal relationship, uh, romantic relationships, uh, uh, parent-child relationships, work relationships, friendships, any relationship you can place yourself in, the center of one of those that is mutually beneficial and fulfilling, the center of that is going to be this, honor and mutual respect. So honor, as we talked about last week, is a better goal for parenting than obedience. Honor is better than, because obedience just simply answers the question, how low can I go? How close to the line can I get and still technically be keeping the rules and doing what I'm saying? What's the bar? But, but, but honor points us in an entirely different direction. It changes the entire conversation. So picking up there uh, for this week, uh, the Apostle Paul follows up this honor uh, idea, this discussion with a similar idea when he writes this. It, being love, is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Love isn't, to put it another way, love isn't selfish. It puts the needs and interests of other people first. 
right? Which, if you think about it, would pretty much solve every single relationship issue that exists. You name the issue that you have in a relationship, being not selfish and putting the other person first, if everybody in the relationship did that, problem solved every time, right? But the most significant thing about these phrases here is that Paul connects two very important dots for us when it comes to relationship. He addresses what is perhaps the most common expression of self-seeking within the context of relationships, certainly within the context of parenting. Because he connects these two things, because he says love isn't selfish, not self-seeking. And then he says love is not easily angered. Now, the interesting thing about this phrase, easily angered here, is that the Greek word that gets translated anger in this verse is actually more of a term that was most commonly used for cooking. When you see this word used in other Greek writings, they're more referring to uh, a culinary uh, context for this word, right? In other literature, it's translated as stirred or stirred up. And so the most common way to to translate this uh, in Greek is love is not easily stirred up, right? Do your kids ever get you stirred up? (laughs) Anybody? Yeah, yeah, they do, right? Of course they do. In fact, your kids could probably get you stirred up in a way that nobody else on the planet can. Right? And this is such a great term because when you're cooking and when you're mixing ingredients or when you're, there's something on the stove and you need to stir it, when you start stirring that and mixing it up, you know, a pot or bowl or whatever it's in, what happens? The things that have settled down to the bottom, they get stirred up and brought to the surface. Like, are any of you, any of those crazy households that buys that natural peanut butter? Ridiculous, first of all, because you open it up, you can't get peanut butter. It's about this much oil sitting on the top. And you got to start mixing that up. And then like the part that's settled down at the bottom, since all the oil is squeezed out on the top, it's all like hard. And you got to start like kind of stirring it up. And then the oil starts splashing over the side, right? Because you're like, ah, you know, know, Kate and I have a clear understanding. That is not to come in our house, this natural peanut butter. But you got to sit there and you got to work at it and work at it. And you finally know it's ready when you start all those peanuts that had settled down to the bottom, start working their way up and you start seeing them on top. And you know you've got everything stirred up. Finally, finally, you can make yourself a peanut butter sandwich. But that's what this phrase, this easily angered, that stirred up is talking about. That's what Paul was getting at as he was writing. Because as you're cooking, you know, and mixing things in, you're not adding anything new to the mix. If you're stirring something on the stove, you're not adding more to it. You're just bringing up, surfacing what's already in there. And I know you don't want to hear this, but speaking from personal experience, let me let you in our secret. Our kids don't make us angry. So many times, and I am guilty as guilty as anyone in the room of sometimes yelling at my kids, oh, you've made me so angry. Like, it makes me so angry when you do this, right? But that's really not the truth. The truth is, is that our kids stir up and bring to the surface 
what is already there, what is already inside of us. And not only do they do that, but they do it better than anyone else on the planet. They do. They're pros at it, right? And, and what is it? What is it that is already in there? Well, Paul has answered the question, hasn't he? He told us it's our self-seekingness, our, our, our selfishness, our desire to have our own way. That is what is getting stirred up inside of us when our kids are making us angry, right? Now, the truth is that honestly, when you get down to it, nobody has ever made you angry. They've simply stirred up your emotions that are already sitting there dormant, waiting to be stirred up. That is already inside of you. Now, having your emotions stirred, that's inevitable. You can't make it through life without having somebody or some circumstances somewhere stirring up emotions. That's just part of living. Um, and in each stage of parenting, uh, you are going to have to figure out as your kids get through the different stages, the, the, the newest best way to be able um, to step back regain perspective when you're in those moments where your emotions are being stirred as a parent and recharge your emotional batteries. Right now, parenting is emotional and it's emotional for two reasons. The first reason that it's emotional is it's because we care. We have a vested interest in our children succeeding and then becoming people that are going to be beneficial contributions to society, people that we're going to be proud of, people that hopefully we like when they're adults. We care. The second reason parenting is emotional is because even though we care about our children, we are selfish. We are. We are selfish beings. And while I'm on this, it is important, important for you to spend time talking to your kids about the emotional side of life. Like this is crucial as kids are growing up to have these conversations so many times, and I've experienced this, so many times parents will hide the emotional turmoil and upheaval that they're feeling when they're going through things. And they will hide it behind this wall and they'll act like everything is okay and they've got it together, right? But don't do that. Don't pretend. Because here's what happens. That just leaves your children who on some level, even though they may not be able to put thought and words to what's going on, that just leaves your children who are feeling the emotional turmoil and know that it's present, that leaves them watching you, thinking you've got it all figured out and you have it together and they don't and they've got to try and figure out how to do that on their own. That's what happens when as parents we pretend that we're not dealing with the emotional aspects of life and of parenting. There's a psychologist named Eli Leibowitz, and he's a child psychologist. He said it like this. He said, it is scarier for a child to have a parent who is struggling and doesn't talk about it versus a parent who is struggling and does talk about it. Because when you don't talk about it, your kids know something's going on and they're not equipped to handle it. And that is scary. That is scary. So age appropriate conversations about the emotional sides of life is healthy and necessary as we are raising 
our children because it teaches our children that it's okay to feel. It's okay to feel and it's okay to express those feelings. And as they grow and get older, you can start to direct to more appropriate ways to, to express those feelings. But expressing feelings is okay. Because after all, somebody is going to come along in their life and stir their pot. It's going to happen. And when that happens, they need to A, understand what is happening inside of them, and B, they need to understand what to do about it. But if you never model it and never talk about it, They'll be in the dark and they'll struggle and fail at that for a long, long time. And then one day, they will be resentful towards you as they're writing or swiping their credit card at the therapist's desks every week because you didn't help them with this skill in life, right? Now, if you haven't figured it out um, yourself, how to handle the emotional stuff, it's going to be difficult for you to help your children learn how to handle those emotional things. So I've got a shirt that I wear sometimes and I love it. And I probably should have had it on today. It's just a t-shirt and it says, it's okay to have Jesus and a therapist too. If you haven't figured out how to handle the emotional stirring inside of you, go for the sake of your children and your family and your own well-being. Please go get help figuring out how to handle those stirred up emotions. Now, this is such a big deal that I wanna press into it a little bit further, right? And I wanna invite another author into the conversation here. Um, here's what James, the brother of Jesus, as he was writing uh, in one of his letters had to say. And we've talked about this before, but this is worth repeating because I think this is one of the most practical insights that you'll ever hear because it explains uh, why we are so uh, easily stirred up by the people that we love the most. Um, and it provides us with a handle for helping our kids understand why they get stirred up as well. So James asked a question and then he answers it for us. Here's the questions he asked. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? In other words, this conflict that you're experiencing, when you experience conflict, what is causing that? Where is that coming from? And when we read or hear a question like this, we're all immediately tempted to point at somebody else. When you're having conflict with somebody and they say, what is the source of the conflict? Our natural reaction is, well, they said, or they did, or they didn't do. It's our natural reaction, right? That's what we do. We point their behavior, their words, their tone of voice. That is what is causing the conflict here. But James and Paul would say, no, 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 no. Those things are simply stirring up what is already inside of you. That's what their behavior and words and tone are doing. So then James, he just goes ahead and answers the question for us. He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? The things that you want? He continues, he goes, you desire, but you do not have. You don't get the things that you want. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. And this is so powerful because the source of our anger 
when it gets down to it and you start peeling off all the layers, the source of our anger is that we are not getting something that we want. That is the source of our anger. Now, parents, I'm not pointing my finger. Not, not at all. I am speaking directly out of my weakness and my failures as I say these things. But this is so true. And it is also so difficult to see, especially with our own children. But when I'm in conflict with my children, when we're having a moment, when they're making me so mad, and I step back from it, and I take that opportunity to get back away from the tension far enough to remind myself of this simple yet powerful principle, right? Then, then, then I become a better parent in the moment, right? And my internal conversation, when I pull myself back from the tension and in the moment, my internal conversation kind of goes something like this. Um, Andy? Be honest. Part of the reason you're so upset right now is that you're not getting what you want. And that can be whatever the problem is right at the moment, right? You want them to do their best. They're not doing their best. You want them to try. They're not really trying, right? You want them to pay attention. They're not paying attention. You, you want them to stop fussing with their sibling, they are not stopping fussing with their sibling. You want them to be quiet so that you can concentrate on something, so you can have a conversation, and they're not at all being quiet. Right? Andy, part of the reason that you're so stirred up right now and about to say things that you're probably going to have to go back and apologize for later is because you're not getting what you want. So I say to myself, own it. Own that. My anger has been stirred because I'm not getting what I want. And when I do that, the temperature of the situation and my interaction with them drops. It drops. Right? And so James is right. Fights and quarrels erupt when somebody, right, isn't getting what they want, what they deserve, or what they may need, right? So parents, own your slice of the conflict pie when it comes to your parenting of your children. And this is why, this is why you should get into the habit when it's appropriate. There's some places it's not appropriate, but when it is, you should get into the habit of stopping mid-argument. And this goes across most all of your relationships, not just with your kids, but stopping mid-argument, right? And saying, you know what part of the problem is here? I know we're arguing round and round about this, but part of the problem is I am not getting what I want. And honestly, I am not sure that there is a more valuable relationship principle to teach and to model for our kids than this one. I'm sure because behind every single conflict that they will ever encounter is someone or perhaps two someones that are not getting their way. But love is not self-seeking. Love is not about me getting my way. And consequently, since that is not what love is, love is not easily 
angered. Right now, there's another reason that we have to get this right in our role as parents as we're raising our kids. Um, is this is that our words, and I briefly touched on this last week, our words weigh so much. They weigh so much. And when we allow our emotions to take over, right, we actually talk and react to our children as if they have the capacity and the understanding of an adult. And they don't. You, you, they, they just haven't gotten to the point as you're raising your children. Now they'll get closer and closer and closer as you're raising them. But a lot of you have really young kids. They're not little adults. It doesn't matter how they come off like that sometimes. Their level of processing and understanding and emotion, they're just not there. And when we lose our cool and allow our anger to be stirred up and start just saying things, saying things, saying things, we're treating them like that. And that is a bigger burden than they can bear, right? Because they have neither of those things, the capacity or understanding of adult. Even worse, there are times that we will get in those moments and we will say things to our children that we wouldn't even dream of saying to another adult that actually has those capacities. And sometimes it's just because we can. Because sometimes you say that to the right adult, if they're friends, if they're good friends, they're gonna look at you and be like, what is wrong with you? If it's the wrong adult, you may find yourself picking yourself up off the floor and wiping a little blood off your lip. But because we have the power and the position over top of our kids, there's sometimes we let things fly out of our mouth that we wouldn't say to other people. So are you easily stirred up in your relationship with your kids? And are you willing to admit that the stuff brought to the surface in those moments was already there and is probably something that you need to work on in your life? And, and would you be willing to pause in those moments and acknowledge that your part of the conflict is that you aren't getting something that you want? And yes, 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 I can feel a little bit of the pushback, but yes, but the things that I want for my children are good for them. Yeah, that's probably true. But the way you're going about it isn't going to accomplish what you want to accomplish, Right? Now own it. That is good parenting. That is good parenting. And, and when you apologize to your children, notice I didn't say if, when, because we all are going to mess up as parents. When you apologize to your children, what you should do is use that moment to own the fact that you lost your potential, your, your anger because you weren't getting your way. Be specific about that. That that is what happened. So, to spin this and phrase it just a little bit different. Uh, when love is not self-seeking, when love is not selfish, it will not be easily angered. It won't. So, but Paul's not done. And this next one is tough. Uh, he says this, it, being love, keeps no record of wrongs. That's right up there with patience with me, <laughs> right? And this one frustrates me on a level because this is true in every relationship, not just the parenting relationship. One of the reasons uh, that this is difficult for me is because 
Um, many times I don't keep a record of wrongs, and the reason is, is because my memory is just that poor. Unfortunately, I'm married to someone who has a fantastic memory <laughs> and helps me to remember the things in which I was wrong. But this is difficult in parenting because as we said at the very beginning, in parenting, the days are long, but the years are short. In parenting, the days are long, but so are most of our memories. But remember, there is no victory to be had in reminding your child of past failures. There's not, they already know where they fail. They don't need you reminding them of it. And besides, when you do that, just to be blunt about it, when you remind your child of their past failures, that's pretty much just a power play on your part. That's not parenting. That's a power play. Because listen, listen, when you do that, when you do that, when someone holds your past over you, what does that do to the balance of power in the relationship? Like that puts them in an elevated position over you when you've done something, when you've failed, when you've done them wrong, and they're reminding you of that. That puts them in an elevated position. But as a parent, you're already in the elevated position. You're already there. Reminding your child of their past failures is like, yeah, I'm already above you. I'm just gonna go ahead and take my foot and shove you down lower and hold you down there. That's what doing that does. But as a parent, as a parent, forgiving and then pretending to forget is always your best path forward, always. Not to mention that, by the way, hint, hint, that's exactly what God does for us. This forgives us and then pretends to forget. Paul keeps going. He says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And in other words, this is a tough one for me because in other words, love does not celebrate catching people doing the wrong thing. Love celebrates people catching people doing the right thing. That's what love celebrates, right? It doesn't feel a sense of victory when you catch them doing the wrong thing, right? And I've had so many of those, aha, I caught you. I knew you weren't doing what I told you to do. I'm gonna be honest. Here, here's the one where I do it on a regular basis. And I guess this is kind of funny, but it's really just sad. <laughs> is that when I go and I wake my kids up for school in the morning, I'll go in and I'll shake them and I'll be like, all right, time to wake up. Time to get out of bed. okay all right, get up. Okay, I'm getting up. All right, and then I go out, I start making coffee, doing my thing, give it about 10 minutes, and then I tiptoe real quiet back to the room, throw the door open to them laying on the bed. Aha, I knew you weren't getting up. I was right, and I celebrate that I was right, that they weren't doing what they're supposed to do. And I don't know what it is in me. Maybe I need an extra session this week, but maybe I don't know what it is in me that gets some sort of gratification from catching my kids not getting up when they're supposed to get up in the morning. Like I said, kind of sad. But it's there. It's in me. That exists, right? And it's just me. When it comes down to it's just me trying to prove that I'm right to my children. What's the win in that? What is the victory in that? Because if we're parenting right anyway, your kids already have you up on a pedestal. They already think you're some kind of superhero. Like it's, when they're this young age, it's nice. It gets less so when they're teenagers. 
but you're already elevated. So what is it? What, what is it in there, right? And that's normal. That's just not love. That's not love coming out of me towards my children. That's, that's just me trying to prove I'm right. And so when love catches a child doing something wrong, we talked about this a little last week, the reaction is, oh no, I hate this for you. I hate that you chose to do this. I hate that you're going to now have to bear the consequences of this. That's the response. Th- then, there's, then there's this one. Paul writes, love always protects. In other words, love always defends. It stands guard. It keeps bad things out. And knowing how to protect our children is difficult. It is difficult, especially as they get older, especially in the, the, the society we're growing up in now with just so many more avenues to them. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, there wasn't all the computers and social medias and phones and all of these things where they just had constant access uh, available. Uh, they were available to access from so many different people and sources. And so the idea of trying to keep your children protected and safe as they grow up in this environment, it's overwhelming. It's difficult to know how to protect your kids without being over protective. And I'll let you know up front, you're not going to get this exactly right. You're not. It's just one of those things that you're going to have to trust your heart and do the best that you can, right? So here's what I suggest. Since you're not going to be perfect on this, if you're going to err one way or the other, starting out, tend to err on the side of too much protection rather than not enough. And here's why I say this. Because if you do that and you err on the side of too much protection at the beginning and you relax your grip slowly, right? It is easier, it is always easier to grant more freedom to your children than to take back freedom that's already been granted. And so you're going to mess up one way or the other, inevitable. Error on the side of protecting a little too much. Trust your gut and know who their friends are. (laughs) Huge. Gets much more difficult as they reach those teenage years. (laughs) But know who their friends are. And one more thing on this. When it comes to giving kids freedom, that should have very little to do with age. I know a lot of times, you know, parents will ask, at what age did you let your kid have a phone? At what age did you let them do a sleepover? At what age did you, at what age, what age, what age, what age? Um, It should have very little to do with age and a ton to do with their maturity and their ability to handle responsibility. Every child is different. You cannot just cookie cutter raise your kids. You've got to know your child. You've got to be invested in your child. You've got to have to begin to give out pieces of freedom and responsibility to see how they respond to those things. It shouldn't all just be like, okay, they're 15 now. They get their permit. Let them go at it. Because that's what the law says doesn't mean that's what you got to (laughs) do. If they're not responsible and they are not mature, you don't have to let them drive. (laughs) They've got to earn that. And so it's not, don't just set up some rigid schedule and be like, well, this is when it happens, right? And, 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 
It's easy for me to say it, but this is an idea that your kids will not understand. In the same way that none of us understood it when our parents handled us that way when we (laughs) were growing it up. So stand your ground as a parent. And another note, it is okay, because this is going to happen sometimes as you're standing your ground as a parent, it is okay for your kids to temporarily hate you. In fact, if you're parenting right, there are going to be times your kid will temporarily hate you. It doesn't mean you're a bad parent. It probably means that you love your children more than you love your children's approval. Right? Because people who seek, parents who seek the approval of their children, right, over what is best for their children, end up with neither the approval or the best at the end. They end up with neither of them, right? And in those fierce battle of wills that you have with your kids, it is in those moments that you are going to discover what and who you value the most. And sometimes as you're doing these things to your kid, love can look like the enemy on the surface. And it's going to. But that's okay. Because love always protects And sometimes as a parent, love has to protect fiercely. Hmm. So wrapping up this discussion, bringing this whole series to a close, uh, remember this. There are no perfect parents. There are no perfect children. There are no perfect families. And honestly, even if there were perfect kids, you wouldn't want one of them. You wouldn't, because a perfect child would probably not enjoy spending time with you, the imperfect parent. So you don't want a perfect kid, right? In fact, sometimes when talking to parents, I've asked them this question. If given the choice between a perfect child who did everything right, who never caused any trouble, who always lived up to expectations, right? Who was always perfectly obedient, but didn't enjoy being with you, if you had that, or you could have a typical kid who gets into trouble sometimes, doesn't always obey, brings you some headaches, but in the end, enjoyed being with you, which one of those would you choose? And it may not seem like it in this particular season of parenting, Because there's times when it's tough, but you would choose a healthy relationship with your adult child every time. You would, over perfect behavior from that child. And here's something interesting. Your heavenly father made the same choice. That he would rather have the relationship than the perfect behavior. Because listen, he gave us the gift of free will. And, and beyond that, he announced forgiveness ahead of time. That makes no sense. If the goal was perfect behavior, if the goal was perfect obedience, you don't give us the ability to do whatever we want and then say, oh, by the way, before you start choosing what to do, whatever you do, I'm going to forgive you. 
It shows that God's priority is relationship with us, not strictly obedience to him. It's relational. He made us as relational beings. So if I had to boil everything in this series down to one thing, it would be this. Parent towards a healthy adult relationship with your children. Set that as the goal. Set that as a goal. And because and, and, as I think about what I want for my family in the future, I want us to, when my boys are out of the house and gone their separate ways and starting to live life and starting to build families of their own, here's what I want. I want all of us to look forward to spending time together. That's what I want once we're no longer under the same roof. I want my sons to look forward to coming back and spending time with Kate and I. I want my sons, when they're out, to look forward to spending time with each other, with us or without us. So when that time comes that they no longer have to be with us, I want them to want to be with us. That is the goal of my parenting a healthy adult relationship with my children and setting your goal, even if it's not this goal, set a goal. And listen, here's what's not a goal. I'm not gonna parent like my parents. That's not a goal. That's a not. Set up a positive. What is the goal? Because when you set up a goal, that will create a framework for every decision that you make in your parenting. It will create guardrails for your time, for your scheduling, for your discipline. It will set up obedience. Obedience is not at the heart of any mutually satisfying relationship. Honor is, and honor is how you maintain influence with your children. You look at any parent who has adult children and they still maintain influence in those children's lives and decisions, they have created an environment of honor and respect between them. Now listen, I have not parented perfectly. You can ask my boys. In fact, my son yesterday, one of them, was, uh, he had been at a birthday party uh, at Star Castle. And then after that, he went to a friend's house and we were talking to him and my wife was talking to him and said, uh, where does this friend, like, where do they live at? And his way of describing to get to their house was, you know that one intersection where dad always gets mad? <laughs> that was his reference point of starting to give directions. Listen, I have shortcomings. <laughs> my kids give directions based on where I get most angry at people. And there have been many apologies along the way. In fact, sometimes my apologies make my boys uncomfortable. But I hope, I hope through all of my shortcomings that I am raising children that will look forward to spending time with me once they are no longer under my roof. That's my goal. And you need a goal for your parenting as well. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for just the way that you continually bring me back and bring us back to the standards and the base behaviors that you set for those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus. 
Lord, thank you that even though I've had so many failures and so many shortcomings, that God, through the forgiveness that you've offered me, I can turn and offer the same grace to my children as they have their own failures and shortcomings. And Lord, when it comes to this idea of parenting, I know that every single parent in here wants to do the best that they can. So God, as we've talked about all of these different ideas over the last four weeks, Lord, let us be intentional. Let us spend time this week thinking about writing down what is our goal for parenting. And then God, give us the wisdom to begin to understand how to go about achieving that goal and the courage to do some of the difficult things necessary as a parent. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much uh, for joining us and wrapping up this series on parenting. Uh, I look forward uh, to seeing all of you as we uh, will be getting into a new series. Have a great week.